This is Kim Senklip Harvey, and you're listening to episode 9 of the Indigenous Cultural Evolutionist. On this week's episode, we'll go over my latest guided reflection for my Lenonic graduate studies class, the importance of Indigenous representation, mysticism versus magic, and my work towards the Indigenous revolution. Thanks so much for tuning in, and let's get started. So my latest guided reflection for my Lenonit um, Indigenous Methodologies course had us talking about and thinking about how we define success. Um, and we had a really incredible discussion in our class uh, around how we can support Indigenous students. You know, I always take it with the lens of uh, Indigenous artists and what are the factors that kind of influence success. So I will read to you uh, what I wrote uh, around what success means to me. Here we go. This guided reflection was submitted to my Lenonic Graduate Studies 500 course on November 5th, 2019. Guided reflection number three, how do you define success? If it's useful to the community. If I build my ability to serve the community with a process that brings peace and equity. If I can release myself from the colonial conditioning and share that process and or experience with the community. If I can re-traditionalize or indigenize myself with the conditioning that centers a worldview from my self-location. If I can create a methodology, a methodology that is useful for other indigenous artists and peoples to confidently self-locate themselves and find their role in serving the community with greater ease. If success is the accomplishment of purpose, then success to me is effectively serving my indigenous communities by bringing equity and peace to our cosmology and interrelationality. I frame my reflection of these accomplishments in the four circles of indigenous relations, personal, family, community, and nationhood, to be able to embed a nourishing and practical application of the work to keep myself accountable to my purpose of accomplishment. Understanding self, our location, and having confidence in that knowledge is at the heart of the work. Giving time for that Indigenous investigation of self and our relations to our cultural grounding is vital. Kovach defines cultural grounding as the way that culture nourishes the researcher's spirit during the inquiry and how it nourishes the research itself. She goes on to say that encompassing culture is a part of the notion of research in relation. I think this is a big part of what success can look like. In a time when close to 70% of Indigenous peoples live off the reservation, success can be as complex and distilled as participating in one's own cultural grounding and conscious self-location. This is the heart and spirit work that allows us to be purposeful in our practices, the foundation we pivot around to ensure success in our servitude. I find success in a colonial paradigm is product and deliverable based driven. Especially with my work in theater, the whole process is based on the industrial revolution model that focuses on the results and not the process. I find a lot of the educational work that I do in working with colonial institutions is shifting the paradigm to embrace and center a process-based worldview that doesn't just look at creation work where the, quote, play is the most important part. For me, the process is just as important as the play, and it needs to be invested in equitably. This is proving to be one of the most difficult challenges I'm facing in a patriarchal capitalistic colonial society and theater sector that exists within these structures. 
for the purpose of my work when I do the readings. I internally replace the word research with creation and find that it's incredibly applicable to the indigenous theatrical creative process. By illuminating the, by illuminating the intersectionalities of working, research, and creating, in relationship to artists and institutions holding and oppressing Western worldviews. I find one of the most laborious aspects of my work is garnering colonial trust in a process and not a product. In Absalon and Willett's Putting Ourselves Forward location in Aboriginal research, they write, quote, finally, when we talk about research in Aboriginal circles, we are not just talking about the goal and the finish. We are talking about everything that happens in between between the beginning and the end of any research project is process. Aboriginal research methodologies are as much about process as they are about product. End quote. If I'm going to be successful in serving my community, I'm going to have to educate colonialists on this process, on this model, on this approach, which is really vulnerable work and relations because process is about trust. Process is a huge variable and process involves the humility to know that within that process, self-location is alive and impermanent and capitalistic colonial systems refuse these notions by design to uphold white power. Absalon and Willett go on to write, Locating oneself is as lively and active as Aboriginal reality today. Each time we locate ourselves, our representations change, and depending on the context in which we locate, we may or may not emphasize certain aspects of our realities. Yet as we locate, we must still account for the relative aspects of who we are and thus represent ourselves accordingly and distinctly. Location will not simply be about your name or where you are from but will reflect more of a dynamic and transformative representation, end quote. I don't currently believe that colonial institutions, especially the large ones, are reflexive enough to respond and support indigenous methods, methods and approaches that are composed of an alive practice of self-location in the creation process. This is a significant problem for indigenous artists and our ability to be sovereign, powerful, and successful. When I situate the ideology of self-location in theater as the creation of the story, the process, I recognize that I have to garner buy-in from producing partners to resource and support a dynamic practice. We need non-Indigenous accomplices, accomplices to courageously bear witness to not just quote the play or name or content of the narrative, but boldly invest in the transformative process. If they do not, then they are forcing Indigenous creative practice into a Western methodology by undermining Indigenous ontological art practice as interrelational which positions indigenous artists to sever ourselves from our cosmologies, which is colonialist white supremacy in action. I will not be a part of maintaining these Western approaches because indigenous peoples will never find any sustainable and sovereign success in white supremacist environments and systems. In stories of diverse identity locations in indigenous research, International Review of Qualitative Research, Kovach quotes Wilson, who writes, quote, we cannot be separated from our work. Not should, nor should our writing be separated from ourselves. Our relationships with our environment, family, ancestors, ideas, and the cosmos are around us. They are who we are and how we will conduct our research, end quote. Success is deeply connected for me to a process that is rooted in an indigenous paradigm within a methodology that honors and nourishes the interrelational bonds of story and spirit. Not one that isolates creative practice and disassociates the storyteller from honoring the entire creation process because this racializes indigenous artists. So success is shifter and trickster work. 
for indigenous artists are going to have to shift the worldviews of colonial institutions to ensure we can be successful in telling our stories and fulfilling our relational purposes. In Edodsi, Judith C. Thompson writes, an indigenous methodology means taking, talking about relational accountability. As a researcher, you are answering to all your relations when you are doing research. The axology or morals need to be an integral part of the methodology so that when I'm gaining knowledge, I'm not just gaining in some abstract pursuit. I'm gaining knowledge in order to fulfill my end of the research relationship. This becomes my methodology, an indigenous methodology, by looking at relational accountability or being accountable to all my relations. For my work to be successful, I believe I'm going to need partners who recognize and support a creation practice that decentralizes the product-based focused and resources an indigenous encircling relational method. That deeply respects my accountabilities to all my relations at all stages of the process. This is the work. With humility and in service to my peoples, Limelit Sachananya. So that was my um, guided reflection on what I believe success to be. And I found this a really incredibly dynamic and complex question to be asking. And one that we reflected on within the class that Indigenous people don't often get asked this. And I encourage you as an Indigenous art practitioner to, or Indigenous person in whatever faculty or, or sector you are in whatever service you're doing to the community, to really think about what what does success look to you because i feel like sometimes it's so easy to get lost in deliverable based product based metrics that aren't good for our spirit that aren't good for our health that don't make us feel nourished along in the process the industrial revolution and capitalism is the model is built to serve the oligarchy just a few people who either make money or a couple who kind of get the limelight at the end and for me i'm really trying to decentralize the power of that capitalistic like model and unfortunately theater is really set up like the industrial revolution and the colonial methodology of creating work um you know there are many opportunities that i've turned down for camelupa to be produced because the methodology and the approach that institutions and producers have come to me has been really colonial it's been all about the play hitting the stage it's been all about the acting it's been all about the production and what i'm trying to communicate with people and non-indigenous people is that this is about process this is the relationality of it this is what um uh, who, who was saying it was uh, Absalon, I believe, who was saying that it is about everything, everything in between from the beginning and the end. Um, and that includes emails, texts, phone calls, responding to them, not responding to them, the way that we treat each other. It pay, plays the part in whether or not I believe the method is being uh, from an indigenous point of view. I see a lot of, quote, indigenous art being presented in a completely colonial model where there's really disrespectful relations happening. And I don't want any part of that. I don't want to participate in upholding the colonialist theater, theater production model or 
that TV kind of model where the process uh, is all about a product. And I feel a lot, a lot, a lot of people are metricizing and focusing on the announcement of a season, the opening night, and it's super ejaculatory, it's super patriarchal, and it's super colonial. And I don't define and I don't see it as indigenous art when it's so product orientated. When I hear from people that the rehearsal hall was colonially violent, when I hear that this person was being disrespectful to that person when they were organizing it, to me, that's just indigenous people holding up colonial methodologies. And I don't really have any time for that. And success to me, as I stated in here, is about its service, its usefulness to the community. It's about indigenous and it's about sharing knowledge and for me when I reflect back on productions of my work I want to tell everyone that from the moment we started talking about presenting a show or getting in relationship that it was respectful to me when I write emails when I get into meetings you know bring gifts bring joy bring respect and if you're not doing that bye you're just upholding colonial um, notions of, of of what theater will be, and, and I, I'm not interested in that. Uh, I don't think it helps indigenous people, and I think it upholds um, harmful systems towards particularly indigenous women, and it totally erases indigenous people's um, pedagogies, paradigms, and ontological practices around sharing our stories. So speaking of indigenous erasure. I came across something recently that I made a Facebook post, so let's roll into that. On November 21st, at around 2.39 Pacific Standard Time, whatever that means, I was scrolling around on Twitter, being a writer, avoiding writing, and I ran across um, an advertisement for a season announcement for the Stratford Festival 2020. It read, feel the power. And uh, I hit it. And it was a minute long. And I knew that they were doing Red Sisters, so I was pumped to check out. I was like, oh, man, you know, Stratford always puts a lot of money into these videos. They get their makeup did. They get their hair did. Everything looking, like, super, super uh, cool uh, and rich. You know what I mean? Stratford's got some economy. And I was excited to see what they were going to do. And I was horrified at what I saw. And here's what I wrote. The largest theater budget in the country, folks, and the indigenous women featured for Res Sisters gets one second of playing time to float in an inner tube. Face palm emoji. What? We didn't want to fly the indigenous women out and give them a fancy film shoe like everyone else? This is the antiquated imperialistic presentations of indigenous theater that present as a quote celebration, but in practice participate in indigenous erasure or marginalization and contribute to the colonial state's desire to primordialize indigenous peoples. What's a joke? I don't care about what Stratford does. Truly, I don't. I illuminate these artistic, quote, leadership decisions because it proves that not supporting indigenous artists is not a fiscal decision. The Stratford Shakespeare Festival's annual budget is upwards of $25 million. 
the pigeon in all's well that ends well in this video literally gets more screen time. The lack of support for indigenous peoples is rooted in institutional anti-indigenous and white supremacist practice. And I speak up because I know that many indigenous artists are positioned by imperialistic power structures to not be able to. My respect and love goes out to the Red Sisters team. And I hope your time there is safe and you are given the utmost respect and support. Also, the tagline for this video is feel the power. Um, what kind of power Stratford side eye emoji? Hashtag indigenous theater, hashtag indigenous artistic sovereignty. P.S. Stratford, if you're reading this, don't email me. You're not on the list. So I had some opinions about that. And there was a really good thread happening on Facebook around this, and I want to honor the people who participated because you know what happens a lot when shit like this goes? All the artistic leaders, no hide, no hear of them. All of a sudden, they don't like the post. All of a sudden, they don't see it. All of a sudden. And so I want to honor the courage it takes for artistic theater practitioners to comment to like all of those who liked it because when i look at those i understand that you are putting yourselves in a courageously vulnerable situation because white institutional power can have an impact on your life that means you might not get an audition you might not get a role you might not get a really nice contract from them that's eight months long that helped pay your rent that helps your family because i know a lot of bipoc artists don't just keep their paychecks to themselves a lot of people are sending it back to their families so like my hands a big thank you to everyone who participated in that i go on to write in that thread i want to say that i don't think mistakes will never be made they clearly will and people shouldn't read this thread and become fragile and rationalize risk-averse artistic programming but racist mistakes like this have to be acknowledged accounted for and responded to it's embarrassing for the theater community, for the entire theater community, that an organization of this size has either consciously participated in this degree of anti-indigenous racist behavior and or they are this ignorant. It's also a reflection of how out of touch their culture is. Since 2017, this institution has received close to $3 million from the Canada Council. This is a publicly funded organization and they need to be held to account. Your move, Stratty. You know, and somebody said, you know, it's really obvious and uncomfortable in this teaser video how little and blurry the indigenous people get. And these are comments from non-indigenous uh, peoples and some, you know, artistic leaders in the community. And I responded to another comment, which is that, you know, if the art direction doesn't feel significant or equitable, that's in, that's. Um, unacceptable. And I said, you know, it then makes the celebration of upholding anti-indigenous imperial power, which is white power and supremacy, white supremacy. This pigeon, which, you know, there's a lady who holds it and it gets to fly off the screen. I go, the pigeon is more activated, celebrated, and given more articulation than the indigenous person. Like, this is not a lie. This is in the video. This is dehumanizing. And if they don't, unho and if they don't hold themselves accountable, and neither does the artistic theater community, then we're all complicit in upholding white supremacy. And we're all responsible for putting indigenous peoples in more danger. Because when we are, we are raised publicly like this, it makes it okay in real life. I go on to write, I showed my dad this, who often thinks I give racist things like this too much attention. He was like, quote, that is bullshit, take him down. There's no excuse. 
for how little screen time this thing gets. There's no excuse for how blurry it is and how out of context the indigenous show is and how little time the women get. When animals, animals, the pigeon and the rabbit get more time, that is totally messed up. And this went past so many people, so many people, so many. And nobody thought, hey, everyone, this is and looks racist. But what's more troubling is I know they won't account for it. The community won't hold them to task, and this will continue to be permissible behavior. But I guess I appreciate this whole violent mess for its clarity, because there is no arguing. They fucked up. And I was... Like, should I put this on the podcast? Should I not? But I'm going, I said, no, I'm going to, because I believe that we need to mark this. If this podcast, this blog, my work are totems for the moment when things are occurring and they impact my work and thus that my community and my ability to serve. This is one of those moments. This is one of those moments where I'm going to say to the rest of the theater community, this is unacceptable. This is unacceptable. And if you are going to put indigenous people in your season, if you're going to put indigenous people in your care, if you are going to become in relationship with them, which is what it is when you program and put us in contract, then you damn well better know how to treat us better than animals. On November 21st on Facebook, I posted why I use mysticism and not magic when speaking about my work as a storyteller. Both words will always fail me as an indigenous person, but I'm very conscious of what concepts and ideologies I use when speaking about spirit and heart work, especially to non-indigenous peoples. Magic goes back to the Magoi, who were Persian tribes serving a monarchy. The origin of that word is about a group of people. Mysticism's etymology goes back to the Greeks and is rooted in the concept, quote, to initiate and induct. Mysticism's genesis is grounded in process. It's never magic for me. It's deaf, never magic realism. It is a manifestation and presencing of indigenous mysticism. I offer my stories as an induction into exploring our relational connectivity. My work is focused on nourishing the cosmic bonds between us and the infinite universe across time and worlds that honor the erotic nature of what it means to be alive. Magic has been so weaponized against peoples and I find in art, it's used to categorize indigenous ontologies as fictional myths and product-based tricks. While mysticism for me is about engaging and honoring the transformational processes of our infinite cosmic work. It is protocol and my humble contributions to our cultural ceremonial evolutions. We may use theater magic in executing a production, but my stories, the narratives, are never magic. It's indigenous mysticism culturally grounded in sailors' truths. Hashtag indigenous mystics, hashtag the indigenous cultural evolutionist. So this one is an important topic for me because as I write and the more I work in the academy and also um, across disciplines and really trying to connect in relationship with audiences, witnesses, and the community, I think our words, the way that we describe our work is incredibly important. And for me, 
I think it's really important that I share why I believe my work to be about the mystics and mysticism and why magic is is quite problematic to me. Um, but in particular, relationship to story and narrative. And I also don't, um, I don't use the word myth um, because I don't believe my work to be mythic. I believe it to be mystic. And like I said at the end here is that it's rooted in ontological truisms from an indigenous paradigm. And I think all too often when, especially non-indigenous people come to our work or hear our stories, it's relegated to the category of myth, magic, and therefore uh, false and fiction. And that is not what I do. That is not what I write. And I just wanted to offer that to community and um, implore us to really think about how we describe our work. Um, I had a lot of challenges around describing Kim Lupa as an indigenous matriarch story, not a comedy, not a drama, definitely not a dramedy, not a trauma porn, not whatever. It wasn't just whatever, it was an indigenous matriarchal story and I think it's really important for artistic leaders and people to understand um, just how important it is for our audiences to know um, the specificity of how we deliberately describe and use our work. And so for me, um, like I said, sometimes we use theater tricks and theater magic, which is tangible production elements in the uh, producing of a show. But when it comes to the narrative, when it comes to the actual stories that we're telling, they are, um, it is about indigenous mysticism, culturally grounded in Salish truths. Okay, let's move on to the next segment. So recently, uh, in this kind of past 12-month period, um, some Indigenous artists have been using this concept of a renaissance, that there's Indigenous renaissance happening. And since I heard it, it's kind of um, just been poking me and percolating in me in a way that um, doesn't sit, it just doesn't sit well. And I wrote this post on Facebook to describe how I'm feeling. Indigenous folks, I just want to offer that calling our work a, quote, renaissance upholds imperial control and white supremacy. A quote, renaissance is a transition from medieval to modern, which perpetuates the colonial desire to primordialize us and categorize our earlier work as savage. I want no part of a renaissance. My work is for the indigenous revolution. Our indigenous sovereignty is what I fight for and a revolution is what we need because it's a forcible overthrow of the government in favor of a new system. I create to be a part of the community of artists and activists contributing to the indigenous revolution. Wife, in service to the revolution, always. Hashtag IR, brown, fist bump emoticon. And uh, a bunch of people have shared this and sent me messages saying that they agree that it kind of makes them cringe and they're not really sure. And um, again, I, I hope this is useful and makes an offer to people because I think far too often our work um, is made, categorized, managed to make it um, easily ingestible by colonialists and non-Indigenous peoples or anybody upholding imperialism. And my work is made to be inconvenient. And the inconvenience is that I'm not going to serve it to you in a colonial paradigm. I'm going to make art for my indigenous peoples 
the ones um, who are living in an indigenous worldview paradigm and ontology. And therefore, if you want to really understand the work, if you want to really feel all of the offers that I've made, then you will have to go and do the work to shift your paradigm to receive it. And Renaissance for me is again taking indigenous work and packaging it in a way that makes it super consumable and convenient and easy for non-indigenous peoples to engage with and that doesn't help my people that doesn't help uh you know when i talked about success that doesn't help my people's success and that's why i think you know this podcast is really about the words and the articulation and um, the, the, the metrics of engagement that truly honor indigenous peoples and our ability to relate to one another. Um, and it is every artist's own prerogative to make art um, and decide who they want it to be for. And I say all of this saying that this is about you know, the way that I want my work and the way that I create the frameworks and um, the terminology that I use. Um, And a friend had posted, you know, um, grateful to learn from you and others. And I said, you know, the Renaissance is a very comprehensible concept for settlers. It's their ideology, their word, and any comparative analysis to indigenous work and a Renaissance is deeply problematic. You know, this work is personal and it's often private for Indigenous peoples. It's why when non-Indigenous peoples don't always, quote, get my work, that's good and purposeful. For we can't share tactics for the revolution with everyone. And I think that will continue to be um, a challenge for people trying to support Indigenous work is that they constantly want to um, shove it into a methodology um, that is easily understood from their own quote expertise instead of asking how do I shift my ways of being ways of knowing epistemology ontology to receive the work that is um, being shared with me and so for me I am a part of an indigenous revolution uh, to overthrow the white oppressive uh, state system to ensure and work towards indigenous sovereignty and the emancipation of indigenous peoples from white supremacy. So don't call me a part of the Renaissance. Don't do it. For our last segment, I'm going to read to you something I wrote on social media. Here goes. Me those white folk and slacks. Friends, this is a reminder that not all indigenous stories want to be white narratives and content and structure. As I start to share my new indigenous TV pilot, All Our Relations, I'm getting prepared to deal with white-centered feedback. Things like, quote, feels luxury. Or, quote, I've never seen this, so it's not true. Or, quote, I'm uncomfortable. And what is now my all-time favorite feedback with any of my work, (laughs) a structural comparative analysis to Hannah Montana. Oh, boy. (laughs) When indigenous stories 
are forced into white paradigms. I always think of this scene from Apollo 13, the one where the guy goes, we gotta make this square filter fit into that circular filter using nothing but this contents on the spaceship thrown onto the table. I imagine Ed Harris is white supremacy. The scientists are colonialism, and the square filter is indigenous art. The circular filter is white frameworks, and then nothing but that is white expertise. The majority of white and imperial thinking folks come into our worlds and immediately, immediately see non-neurocentric structures and world-making as problematic. And they try to force it into their normative frameworks. This is why depression, and this is why we need more indigenous dramaturgs, directors, producers, professors, students, and art creators holding development space. Too many indigenous artists are forced to face the room full of white scientists alone. Too many of us are not given equitable opportunity to be given feedback that is useful. Too many of us have had to refuse the experts trying to manipulate the art alone. We need you to take a breath, embody some humility, and ask questions before you start creating mechanisms to make it more ingestible, understandable, and convenient for yourself. Hashtag Indigenous TV, hashtag Indigenous Stories, hashtag Indigenous Love. So, um, this is a post around how non-Indigenous folks in creative and academic environments can support us without perpetuating white supremacy. All too often, all too often, you know, my friend Troy Sebastian, who's a Tunaco writer, is in the second year of his MFA. He's actually defending his um, uh, thesis this Friday. You know, we're all very proud and excited for him. But other than that, in my program, there are no Indigenous people. And um, I'm very grateful that um, I have Troy, but I don't have Troy and I don't have Indigenous peoples in all of my classes other than my uh, elective this semester, which is the Lenonic Indigenous Methodologies course. And giving feedback, one, is an art. And I just want to shout out to all the artists out there who get hired for table reads and workshops for new plays because of how incredible they are at giving feedback. That is not a skill that everybody has. We know that. We know people who don't know how to do first reads, who don't know how to contribute to the participation, and uh, critical feedback and reflection in a way that's useful. Because in theater, it's not about um, individuals, you know, as Lindsay LaShawn says, taste-based feedback. It's not about that. When we get around a table to do a workshop, there's an investigation into understanding what the playwright is trying to do, what the the storyteller is trying to do, and how we can ask questions to help accomplish that end. And what I'm finding in some uh, academia environments, that it's really based around each individual's desire for the work. And there lacks a collective consciousness or um, intent and then um, accountability to impact of people's feedback on the work. And so, you know, one, 
I really think this um, <laughs> uh, comparison to uh, the Apollo 13 scene is incredible. And I posted it on Facebook and Twitter. So if you want to go do it, um, watch that scene. But I feel like everybody remembers that scene. But it's basically whenever I see it, it's like that that problem that has to be solved. And in that environment, yeah. Those, those astronauts with the carbon levels were in serious problems. And to have a team of people be able to make a square peg fit into a round hole was um, incredibly important for their uh, survival. In relationship to it being artistic, I find many, many people want uh, to shove many pieces of art into worldviews that are their own. And I think that's really, uh, I think that's really boring. (laughs) I don't know how to say it any other way. I think that's really safe and safe art is really boring to me. And what's more interesting and what actually takes to me more complexity and more artistic rigor and endurance and strength, nuance, innovation, is to read somebody's piece and surely confidently envelop yourself in that world and ask questions once you've put yourself in that world instead of a observational projection um, position. And so um, I'm curious as to other creative writers around their experience of this. I find the spaces that I create in indigenous theater to talk about the work we use, you know, um, either uh, dramaturgical structures that are rooted in indigenous ontologies, like Lindsay Lachance used the... um, Anishinaabe Seven Values for, you know, Kamloopa. We integrated fire protocol for Kamloopa. You know, I was able to start to create an indigenous values for Salish creation. Um, What are the frameworks that creative writers use and artists use to ensure that when work is in development, we're getting feedback from a worldview and that is impacting the work in a way that helps serve the end. Not as me as an individual who wants the work to be convenient and understandable from me, but how do I as a Salish indigenous woman come into pieces of art and help serve? And this is something that I've been deeply, deeply working on, especially when uh, this new project that I'm Halamia Sparrow is writing and starring in, how do I, as a Silkotin, Tunaka, and Dekel woman, serve, support, and ask questions that illuminate, reveal, and help express a Musqueam Stalo story? So I say all this to anybody entering into indigenous worldviews, indigenous creations, indigenous art. Check yourself check 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 yourself so this has been episode nine of the indigenous cultural evolutionists we talked about success 
We talked about representation. We talked about the importance of mysticism versus magic. We talked about the indigenous revolution. We talked about how we can structure um, creative environments to ensure that indigenous worldviews are being celebrated and not crushed into white oppression. It's Euro settler normative frameworks of story creation. We have been getting some incredible traction with this podcast. I've been getting direct messages and emails and looking at all the data and the analytics. We have like over like five, six countries tuning in, getting close to over a thousand listens. So please get in touch with me. Let me know if it's useful. I do read them, especially if it's like, yo, listening, found this episode useful. And I also want to say that I have some people who have been contacting me around citing this. And I think it was easier for the Academy to cite it when it was a blog. But I'm finding that the podcast is just something that is easier for me to get and to actually disseminate um which is also why i'm kind of turning a little bit away from theater and more towards tv and film because dissemination is proving to be much easier i'm finding a lot of barriers with uh colonial and imperial minded people who don't want to get the work into the community and i feel like i can do that really easily with um like the podcast and uh, the pilot that I'm working on. So if you'd like to cite the podcast, please do. Again, this is an offer for the community. And uh, get in touch. Shares are so helpful. If you find this podcast useful, share it on your social media, on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter. And let's make sure that anyone who needs this information or is looking to uh, find or figure out ideas around this, that they're able to get access to it. Thank you so much for listening. From my ancestors to yours, Limonet, Sech Ananya. This is Kim White out. This week's postscript is brought to you by a little thing I'm doing on Twitter called Indigenous Crush Day. So I think I was in the midst of like reading a Twitter feed or a social media day or wherever I was getting my news. There was a lot of pain happening, really righteous pain from people. And I wanted to create a little celebration for the incredible amount of indigenous people that are out there and have a conversation about the importance of having a crush. You know, when I was younger and I had like a partner, I'd be like, oh my gosh, to my sister, I have a crush on this person and um, I, but I, I, I think, is that bad? And my middle sister currently would be like, no way, crushes are healthy, normal, important. And I really remembered that. That was like over 12, 13 years ago, she told me. And so I wanted to create something that celebrates a crush. And that can be in many ways and forms. And so I wrote to focus on joy and love and indigenous power. I'm going to share an indigenous person each Monday that is crushing it. And I'm crushing on them, crushing it because crushes are healthy. We kicked it off with the incredibly talented um, Stephen Paul Judd on November 4th. Uh, Then we moved 
to uh oh my gosh i just lost the hashtag um yolanda Bennell, uh who we were crushing on who's an incredible actor last week we were crushing on uh duncan McHugh, and i think everybody has a crush on duncan and uh this week we're crushing on my very good slaxed and quee and um uh, incredible femme extraordinaire, Lindsay Lachance, who's Algonquin Anishinaabe and the Artistic Associate at the National Arts Center Indigenous Theater. She's a PhD from UBC and is a kick-ass dramaturge. She's a gorgeous artist who's crushing it. Uh, brown hands up emoji, heart emoji, sunglass wearing emoji, and then I wrote, who you crushing on? So check it out on Twitter to find out who the past three crushes are. Use the hashtag yourself. I feel like kicking off the week, focusing on joy and indigenous love is incredible fun. And share with me your indigenous crushes. <laughs>